And as I've said before, and as we always recognize, the way to study Torah is to treat it as a reflecting pond or as a mirror um, to see what about our own lives at this moment we see reflected in the Torah. And in that interaction with the text, we get new insight, broader awareness, um, a sense of being connected to the tradition. All those things happen as long as we're willing to invest our own experience into our study of the text. Um, so this week's portion, I'm gonna give you an overview, is a double portion. It's called Tazria and Mitzora. And again, a double portion is when two portions are joined together for one week's reading, which happens with uh, eight different portions during years that are not leap years in the Jewish calendar. That is to say, when there's a leap year, as many of you know, we add a whole month to the calendar, which means we need four extra portions. So whenever there's a leap year, the double portions get split in two. But this isn't a leap year, so this is a double portion called Tazria Mitzorah. Tazria Mitzora is the dreaded portion for, uh, if, for bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs famously because it's really obscure. The Book of Leviticus is a priestly manual for when we had high priests and priests. Again, I'll say the Hebrew word for priest is Kohen, Kohen. So, uh, Jay, you would have been there. And... Uh, um, in ancient Israel, in the Torah, the priests are the intermediaries, the ones who bring the people and God into contact with each other through the rituals that happen in the tent of meeting, as it's known, the, also known as the Mishkan, the dwelling place for the divine presence. So the whole book of Leviticus is in, a, is in many ways a priestly manual. Here are the instructions for how to bring the people into holy contact with the divine. And many of the rituals are completely alien to us. And again, I know many of you know this already, but I'm just going to repeat for framing purposes. That's because for almost 2,000 years, we have not practiced these rituals. When the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in the year 70, all of these rituals ceased and were repurposed as synagogue rituals, as acts of prayer and devotion and loving, acts of uh, loving kindness. And so what was this very physicalized, um, um, high, what we call high church, very ritualized, um, ways of symbolizing with animals and offerings and cleansing and um, all kinds of all kinds of fabulous rituals uh, for bringing people back into connection with God were gone from Jewish tradition and were replaced by uh, what we now know of as our synagogue life. Okay, so that means that even a long time ago, in Jewish thought, this was a long time ago. 
Um, and yet we still study it because that's what we do. So I again will repeat that our goal for me, what makes Torah um, a come alive is what do I think the intention of the ritual was, right? Uh, uh, so, um, because we don't perform this ritual anymore, so we're not studying it for the details of how to accurately fulfill these roles. These, these. So that's the framing of Tazria and Metzora and of the whole book of Leviticus. So Tazria and Metzora are uh, uh, um, chapters that focus on what to do if a person has a skin affliction called tsara'at. Tsara'at is a skin affliction. It gets described in detail, but there are multiple kinds of tsara'at. In most biblical translations, tsara'at is translated as leprosy. Um, that is one of the, I was reading all about this this morning, that is one of the accidents of the history of translation. Lepra in the Greek translation became leprosy in the King James version, but lepra didn't mean leprosy in the Greek, and tsara'at certainly doesn't mean leprosy. Let me explain why. A person can get tsara'at, a garment can get tsara'at, and even a house can get tsara'at. So forget about leprosy, okay? Except why it's stuck is because one part of the treatment of the mitzora, I'm gonna call the person with, by the Hebrew name because we don't have a good English word for it. The person who has this affliction is that they are to be quarantined and to live outside the camp until this priest can inspect them again to see if they have recovered. So obviously, we know that leper colonies, we, until recently, you know, until modern, modern medical science, we, leprosy can be arrested, right? It's preventable. Uh, it's also not particularly contagious. Um, but leper colonies, because they were thought to be contagious, were isolated, separated, and quarantined. So because of that, it seemed obvious to medieval and later translators that it must, mean, must be leprosy. Um, and here you'll get to, and we're going to circle back to this, obviously, most years, I don't think too much about the quarantine. But this year, that's what jumped out at me. Social isolation was one of the treatments for Sarat, for this, this disorder. Um, and here we all are. So I'm gonna to get to that later in, the, um, later in, in, in this hour. Uh, but I, I, it just doesn't seem right for me to jump right over to there until you know the context because this context is so um, alien to our, our everyday life. The priests were not doctors. 
nor did ancient Israel in, in whenever this is, X century BC, understand contagion in the way we understand it now. So that analogy won't hold. They were concerned about a symbolic contagion. Um, and the, the steps that they take were not to prevent other people from getting, catching this disease in the way we understand how infections travel now. They were working in a different conceptual framework. And the conceptual framework was holiness. And um, let's see, I guess the opposite would be um, uh, uh, tahor uh, 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 and tameh or kadosh and chol, which means um, a state of wholeness or a state of disintegration. And this state of wholeness or holiness was what was required so that you could come near the divine presence. If you were in a fragmented state, you were not in a position to experience the holiness of God. And the physical manifestation of these skin disorders, which are about part of your skin, there's very elaborate descriptions, becoming discolored or blotchy or in some way your skin losing its integrity was a symbol, as I understand it, of another kind of loss of wholeness. Uh, the same happens later in this portion where in addition to these skin maladies, if a person bleeds, like you talk about menstruation or other kinds of bleeding, where the container has law, it doesn't seem to be holding its wholeness, where um, there's a whole section on um, sem emissions of semen and other emissions from the male organ, which also puts you in a state of non-holiness. These are not moral categories in this case. These are symbolic categories. However, later in Leviticus, we learn that there are moral behaviors that if you don't fulfill, also put you in a condition of fragmentation. And that's the chapter we'll get to in two weeks where the, 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 the instruction is to love your neighbor as yourself so that you will be holy. So in ancient Israel, holiness was both, was a moral category, a spiritual category, and a physical category. Because for them, the whole universe was a bunch of analogies. Right? They, weren't, they weren't an analyzing the way we know how to do with uh, scientific research now. They were, they, were anal they were seeing the world through the eyes of what's holy and what's not holy. Does that make sense, everybody? Um, uh, so that's why also, as a, you know, an aside, the previous week's chapter was all about which animals are fit to eat and which are not fit to eat. That was last week. And it's continuous with these portions. But even though we wish that, um, 
many of us are always looking for why we keep kosher. And we're always looking for, well, the shellfish were bottom feeders or the, 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 the swine had were trichinosis or, sorry. It was a different symbolic universe for them. And the priests, as it were, were the medicine men or the shamans who were the ones who, who could rectify when the community was out of balance with God through these rituals. Um, excuse me, I'm getting warm. Jonathan, I'm pausing. I took a course once at Drisha where we were looking at mitzvot and how the basic mitzvot haven't changed from what it says in the Torah, but how people think of them have changed. And right. one of the examples that we looked through in different sources was kashrut, which Torah simply says, do this because I tell you to, basically God, God says. But the medieval commentators said, no, it's healthier. You know, we don't eat That's the bottom right. feeders. And then in the last 200 years, commentators have said, no, it's a spiritual practice of awareness. What are we putting in our bodies? What are we bringing in our houses? And, and several other time periods, how it changes how you think about it. Beautiful. Gwen raises a great point, which is that there are the mitzvot, the commandments. And I think if we had lived in the time when the Bible was composed, we would have understood why, because of the worldview of that time. And so the anthropologist in me is always trying to imagine what their, what their worldview was through which they drew meaning from these uh, uh, rituals. However, there's also a whole field of Jewish mm, writing, thinking called Ta'amei HaMitzvot, which means the reasons for the mitzvot. And these reasons change depending on the era that you're in. Uh, and uh, Mordechai Kaplan, um, uh, who was the founder of the Reconstructionist Approach to Judaism, which I was trained in, embraced this and said, we can take the commandments and imbue them with meaning that speaks to us. That, that doesn't have, we don't have to retroject and say, this is what it really meant. Uh, we can say, that this is what it might have meant then, and this is what it means to us now. And then we keep the practices of Judaism alive by imbuing them with contemporary meanings. I get a lot. I really like that approach because it doesn't require me to pretend I know what was going on back then. Do, do you know what I mean? Um, I, for me, it's more intellectually honest. Uh, and that's the way I like to, uh, I like to roll, as they say. So, um, so thank you, Quinn. Okay, so, um, so then there's two terms, most of all in these chapters that you need to know. One is they are tahor and tameh. And again, in traditional translations, they always get translated as pure, tahor, and tameh, impure. And if you're in a state of tahara, purity, you can be close to God. If you're in a state of tameut, or tum'ah, uh, you're in a state of impurity and you cannot enter the holy precinct. The problem with the words pure and impure is that they have a lot of moral connotations to them. And therefore, if a woman's bleeding her menstrual blood, she's impure, there's no, you know, it's like, and we, we get all up in arms about that. But in this case, I'm convinced that's not what the Torah meant. 
And so we search for other translations. And tahor means you are in a condition where you can enter the sanctuary, approach it. Tameh means you are in a condition where you have to go through a ritual in order to be restored to a state of tahara. And there doesn't seem to be a moral valence to this in the Torah. And so the best translation I've seen for Tameh is susceptible. Um, when you're, when you're Tameh, somehow you're, you're in a, some kind of danger zone. You're, there's something, there's, you've got, you, your, your container is um, temporarily, um, uh, 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 um, you've lost some integrity of your container somehow. And to be restored to it, you have to go through a ritual. Uh, so you can be tahor again. And no one and no thing is ever in a permanent state of tum'ah. It's not a permanent condition that's about your essence. It's a condition about your status that needs to be addressed so that you can reintegrate into the community. And again, it can be a moral category of you have to make amends for something you've done. So you bring an offering to God and you make your amends so that you can be restored to this condition. But it's also, again, in this analogical world of analog, it can be your body, it can be your clothing, it can be your home. And you have to think symbolically in that case about what, what needs to be restored so you can come back into the precinct of holiness. With that framework, it becomes a very interesting conversation about our own community, even though we have different categories. So what I want to put up for you is just one passage from this portion, and then I want to study with you what the Talmud has to say about it, because I think that'll lead us up into the present. Ah, perfect. You know, um, Gwen, is it hard for you to select verse 44 also? No, it isn't. Ta-da! Okay, great. Um, and do you have the Fox translation? That's what you're seeing. No, I'm seeing the King James. No, it says King James up at the top, but see, Above Leviticus, it says W-E-B, which is the fox. Uh, no, that's not the fox. See what else okay. you got. Okay, here's JPS. Uh-huh. And there's the King James. Okay, what are the others? Uh, I think that's the only English, because um, then I could put it into Hebrew, and um, I have different, uh, th this is okay. the Apocra. Except okay, then just put up the JPS because uh, no, that... this is the show, Ken. There, oh, there we go. Okay, uh, yeah, this is the one I wanted. Um, excellent, thank you. Sure, looks good. Looks good. Everybody, see it? First of all, I'll just I, I want to read these with the Hebrew words, so you get the sound of it. And listen to the repetition. He is a man with tzara'at. He is tameh. Yes, tameh. Tameh shall the priest declare him. On his head is his affliction. 
Now the one with tzara'at that has the affliction, his garments are to be torn, his head is to be made bare, and his upper lip is to be covered. Tameh, tameh, he is to cry out. All the days that the affliction is on him, he shall remain tameh, tameh is he. Alone shall he stay. Outside of the camp is his staying place. So in these three verses, the word tameh is repeated seven times. One of the things you'll learn about Torah passages is that they, they're like a poetic form. They're a different literary form. And uh, if, um, <clears throat> if a word is repeated five or seven or 10 times in a passage, it's the word that's supposed to ring in your ears. Tameh, tameh. So I just wanted you to hear that. And now there's this section that says, oh, the one, now the one with tzara'at that has the affliction, his garments are to be torn, his head is to be made bare, which is, you know, uncovering your hair in ancient times was a sign of, um, that you were in a different state of, a different state, a different condition. Um, and his upper lip is to be covered. Nobody's quite sure what that means. Does that mean you wear a, um, well, we don't know what it means. Um, and then, tame, tame, he is to cry out. And all the days that the affliction is on him, he shall remain tame, tame as he, alone shall he stay outside of the camp is his staying place. Um, so now I want to get to this theme of this is the person who is somehow in quarantine, somehow is to be avoided. Uh, I mean, it appears that way, doesn't it? Um, and even if the moral categories, uh, whatever they were, the Torah doesn't seem to think of this person as being somehow bad, but they are in a condition where they are somehow dangerous, right? Their condition is somehow endangering the well-being of the community. And in ancient times, that well-being meant their ability to have the house of God right in their midst. Um, so there, the analogy to our current situation becomes alive for me. Um, and here is a person whose condition endangers the well-being of the community. And it's not because they are not being morally condemned, but they need to separate themselves from the community and they need to let people know of their condition through both their appearance and through what they announce about themselves. So of course, you can see why this passage grabbed my attention today. Um, Diane Colella raised her hand. Love to hear from you, Diane. Covering the upper lip, might that be like wearing a mask? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so this, this passage just got a lot more relevant. Uh, 
they're supposed to wear a mask of some kind. That's yeah. amazing. That's amazing, yeah. So this is the passage. Uh, Bonnie, you were thinking the same thing, yeah. Um, and remember, anyone's welcome to raise their hand. I just benefited from that observation as I always do from your observation. So with that in mind, so everything I said up to this point was just so that this didn't seem utterly bizarre to you. Um, and and so then as I studied the portion, I went, oh, this is the passage for this moment, this Shabbat. Um, the person who is Sara'at, who some whose whose condition is somehow contagious and of a danger to the community, needs to make themselves visibly different, uh, needs to um, uh, announce their condition and needs to stay outside of the main camp. In other words, needs to socially isolate until the priest can come and uh, examine them, at which point determine whether they can be restored into their regular place in the community. Roberta? Roberta Wall? Hi, yeah, I'm just also noticing um, how much this mirrors um, the state of mourning. So it's, it's, it's a kind of, uh, there's some kind of death going on. Um, yeah. You are anticipating the passage from the Talmud that I'm oh. gonna show you. Yeah, they are also noticing the same thing because contact with death in the Torah also puts you um, in the state of um, susceptibility, liminality, impurity. Uh, and so they compare the two also. How, so we'll, we'll look at that. I wanna see what that last comment was because my little screen is too uh, um, cover his upper lip. Ah, Don, let me look at the Hebrew. Uh, there, I can put my group chat over here. There we go. Um, no, it's not, because the word here specifically is safam, which is your lip, not panim, your face. Um, uh, and ya'ateh, uh, cover. But it's a different word than used for Moses when he comes down from Mount Sinai. That's a masveh, a veil, and it's on his face. So that's a good question. Um, great. So now I'm going to ask Gwen to put up the passage from Talmud that we're going to read together. I think it has a beautiful teaching in it. Ah, Joan, you said, I was also thinking the same thing about, I like your comment, I want to read it. Um, I was also thinking the same thing about the mask and we the community don't know if it is a moral, physical or environmental susceptibility. Good point. I, that was kind of two different things. Uh, I was talking about the mask thing that um, Diane, but I put oh. myself I put myself in the place of someone in the community and someone's crying out to my, to my, to my, but I, as a community member, I don't know what kind of imbalance he's been quote unquote judged as needing to um, work with in order to be not dangerous to the community anymore. Mm -hmm. 
how do I know? I don't care, I guess. He just goes out in separation and works on it with the priest, I guess. I guess so. Um, okay. Okay, so now we're looking at the Talmud, tractate called Moed Katan, and they are discussing this passage. First, Rabbi Abahu says, and we have to get through about four paragraphs to get to the... Um, uh, Three or four paragraphs. Um, so Rabbi Abahu said, an allusion to the marking of graves may be derived from here, where it says, now he quotes that piece of Torah that we just read, and the leper in whom the plague is, his clothes shall be rent, and the hair of his head shall go loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry, impure, impure. This verse teaches that impurity cries out to the passerby and tells him, remove yourself. In other words, protect yourself. So Rabbi Abahu says that the Tameh, the person who is Tameh, uh, is saying, has to say that so that the people are forewarned to keep their distance. So I'm infectious, right? I'm just translating that into current our current understanding of how these things get communicated, which we understand now, how the coronavirus gets communicated. Um, the leper must inform others of his status so that they know not to come into contact with him and thereby maintain their ritual purity. So too in our case, graves must be marked so that others will know to avoid them and prevent contracting ritual impurity. So Rabbi Abbas is making an analogy between the traditional Jewish um, um, concern about accidentally walking through an unmarked graveyard because that, that puts you in that state of tame because you've been close to death, encountered death, so you are not whole at that moment, and this other condition that also makes you not whole. Uh, and that's why he's saying uh, we have to, you have to mark cemeteries well just like the Tameh had to announce their condition well, so people could avoid contracting this condition, right? It's a different condition than what we're talking about today, but I think the analogy carries through. Well, we still ritually wash our hands when we leave a cemetery. Yes, we still have that um, uh, vestige of the ancient practice. Uh, so that that's true, but now I'm talking about actual, what we understand is the actual uh, capacity for germs to communicate infection, which is the situation we're facing now. But yes, there are still vestiges of these traditions in, in Jewish practice. And in Israel, whenever, you may know this, whenever a new um, construction project is uh, announced, there are two groups with a huge vested interest in that construction project before it can be built. Three actually, because there's the environmentalists in Israel. Then there's the Department of Antiquities, which will not allow a building to be built until there is a preliminary archeological dig there. And then there is the ultra-Orthodox community who, if there happens to have been a Jewish burial ground there, wants to make sure that it if it's discovered that it's consecrated and no, and either have the graves removed or um, uh, be preserved so that they won't come into contact with the dead. So 
that's a bit of an excursion, but it's kind of interesting, isn't it? I have a great story I'll tell you sometime about my brother getting a, a, a summons from the antiquities department because he dug a swimming pool in his backyard without getting a permit. Hmm. Um, Roberta has her hand up. Roberta? There's something that's really stirring in me about, um, uh, so the leper, well, that we're not saying leper, uh, right. must inform others so that others can maintain their ritual purity. Right. And so there's, uh, there's a collective need. Uh, I mean, the, the whole, what, what makes this people significant is that as a collective, there is uh, a ritual purity. And, you know, because I'm thinking, what, what is it that's missing in our country today that, that uh, so many people are completely resisting this? Uh, and I live in North Carolina, mm. right next to Kentucky. I mean, I, I came back from the Middle East where I was exposed directly to the virus. So I was very aware that, you know, I was walking around. I was the, the uh, Tame person. And I noticed that people were just right in my space until I said, I started saying, I have been exposed. And then people were like, oh, thanks for letting me know and backed off. And so I, I don't know, there's just something I think really powerful here for us to, to think about, you know, what is it that we're missing that we can create here so that um, this is really useful, um, I, you know, and well, I don't know. <laughs> I'm with you, and it's going to get even better as we go to the, in, in a moment to the next paragraph. But I do want to say that the traditional language of being a holy community, that is, the children of Israel told about Sinai, if you accept these commandments and fulfill them, you will be a holy community, right? And that becomes the goal of the Torah and of the laws of the Torah to create, if we abide by these rules, and these strictures and these guidelines, we will become a holy community. We don't use holy in that way quite, this, you know, these days, but what does it mean to be a civic entity, right? It's that same understanding that, uh, the best way I could put it is that we're all in it together, right? And so, yes, we are experiencing the fragmentation of, a, of an American civic identity that just continues to unravel. and. Um, uh, it, it, it's very relevant to me. So I'll go on. So then the Talmud says, similarly, Rabbi Uziel, grandson of Rabbi Uziel the Great said, impurity cries out to the passerby and tells him, remove yourself, stay, keep six, at least six feet away from me, right? So that just, Rabbi Uziel just is another tradition in the Talmud that is um, agreeing with Rabbi Bahu. So now let's go to the next paragraph and see what it says. <clears throat> um, continuing the thought, the Gemara elaborates on it. With regard to this verse, does it come to teach this idea? That verse is needed for that which is taught in the following Baraita, another Talmudic saying. Excuse me. <clears throat> and he shall cry, impure, impure. This teaches that the leper must inform the public of his distress 
and the public will pray for mercy on his behalf. So this is a contradictory tradition, which is commonplace in the Talmud. This is actually the dialectic of the Talmud. It means this. No, it means this. And then they talk about it, right? That's the Jewish way. So the reason this tradition says that he says impure, impure, is so that the public will pray for mercy on his behalf, the opposite, right? So is he saying impure, impure to warn people about its condition to protect them? Or is he saying impure, impure so that people can extend their compassion towards him? This is a beautiful little piece of Talmud. And I want to thank Brent Spodek, Rabbi Brent Spodek at uh, uh, Beacon Hebrew Alliance and Rabbi Elon Trebwasser sent me his teaching, which I then dove into. So we have, in typical Talmudic fashion, we have, is it this? In other words, on the one hand, on the other hand, that's what we got, tap, that's classic. And here's the answer. If it is so that the verse comes to teach only one idea, then let it write, he shall cry, tame. What is to be derived from the repetition of tame, tame? Okay, so this is a classic. When a word is repeated twice in the Torah, it means that there are multiple meanings to it. When it says justice, justice you shall pursue, it means there are multiple understandings of what justice means. So here, they do a beautiful compromise in the classic Talmudic fashion. And don't get hung up on the um, mechanics of it, because what you want to get to is what they're learning from it. Learn from this that there are two ideas that are both happening at the same time. First, that the leper must inform the public of his pain so that others will pray on his behalf. And second, that he must warn the public to stay away so that they avoid coming into contact with him and contracting ritual impurity. So this beautiful Talmudic teaching is that it's, it's about both the person and the, the, everybody else. That he isn't just warning them and he isn't just asking them to care for himself. He's doing both. Uh, Carol, would you like to say something? Are you unmuted, Carol? I thought Gwen was going to, okay, now I am. Um... All this while I've been thinking about earlier, you said um, that, that this was about holiness on one side and you used the word disintegration on the other side. Mm -hmm. And that, was very, that feels very powerful for me. I think that just personally, there is a period of every day when I am feel disintegration is the best word that I can come up with for how I'm feeling. Mm -hmm. Just coming apart in all different directions and my need at that time is is both these things my need at that time is to tell somebody because i can't bear it on my own mm -hmm. and my need is to warn people to, to isolate myself so that i don't i don't disturb anybody or make anybody upset or 
or make people go further away from me. Um, and I, and I mean, of course, I'm always astonished how I, <laughs> I certainly have no original thoughts that somewhere the Torah and the, and the Talmud have, have said it a hundred thousand different ways, whatever I'm thinking or feeling, but, but it, this, this, um, this context where, where I must say what's going on or show what's going on so that people can pray for me is so powerful that I, that I have to, I have to do that. That's what I have to do. It's not a question of whether I feel comfortable doing it or not. That, I have to do that. And, 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 and at the same time, people have the right to respond however they need to in order to keep themselves whole. I think that's what I want to say. <laughs> Thank you, Carol. Anne, you had your hand up. Do you still want to speak? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, I'm thinking about the, the people... And I don't mean now during with the COVID, I mean, in what we hope are still normal times. Uh, the people who go around with obvious signs to the public that they are unwell or coming apart or something. And it's, it's mostly like the homeless people, the people with mental illness that people see and want to shy away from. And there's also... Uh, in some people, the desire to pray for those people or wish them well, but there's also the fear. There's the terrible fear of the illness. Most illnesses don't announce themselves, but uh, when somebody's homeless and mentally ill, it announces itself. So we're being asked to maintain the social contract of both caring for the person and caring for ourselves. And of the ill person, of the person who is contagious, I'll use that word, for the person who is contagious, we're being at, they're being asked also to be the citizen, to, be, to maintain the social contract of mutuality. I'm warning you about my condition, I'm separating myself, and please don't forget to show concern for me and help me through this. It, it's, um, so that's what I was, that, that's one of the things I was hearing. And Gail, I'll call on you in a second, because Meg wrote, if he shall dwell apart, who is he calling out to warn? I had the same question, Meg. Um, I'd like if anyone has any insights about that, I'll welcome. Can I ask some other question related to that? Can you hear me? Yes, and, and then Gail has her hand up okay. too. So, because we're talking about the social contract, and that is confusing. Why are they calling out? Then we have um, an example of Rebecca, uh, uh, Roberta Wall. You know, you said that you told people to move away. I thought the social contract was if you know that you've been um, exposed, like you said you were in the Middle East, you then have to isolate yourself for 14 days because that's the amount of time that it can express itself in. But what's most disturbing to me is to try to understand, because originally, Rabbi, you said that leprosy was not usually contagious. But here they're talking about contracting 
ritual impurity. Right. What does that mean? How is ritual impurity contagious? And the thing that I want to say, what has really affected me a lot, I think a lot of us have seen the program Unorthodox on TV. Mm -hmm. When the rabbi said, you must bring her back from Berlin. You must go get that wayward girl who obviously is disintegrating, is, has gone astray, and is what you were talking at, about at the beginning, was disrupting the whole fabric of the community. From her leaving, it was a disruption to the whole community. And I just wonder if that's what they mean when they say contracting ritual impurity, you know, that if one person does something that is really um, showing an illness, which in the ultra-Orthodox world would be to turn away from the ultra-Orthodox ways, that that somehow can be contracted. It was a breach of the whole social contract of the, you know, Borough Park ultra-Orthodox community. It, it just seems related somehow. And it is. It's, yeah, go on. No, I just think we're talking about on so many different levels, which is different from COVID, which we know is contagious and infectious. And what we were just talking about where the people who are, they may not be, may or may not be asking for help, but they're clearly need help because of a mental or a homelessness condition. So there are just so many levels that we're talking about, but it brings up to me, one of this, the interesting things is contracting ritual impurity, how we would define that. Thank you. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna follow up on that question, but I'll let it, I, I'm gonna let it be there. Uh, thank you for those observations, Meg. Gail? I was thinking um, first about Carol's comment that I think while we're so aware of the various people, particularly in the news right now, headlines, who don't seem to get that they have an obligation to protect others from their own possible contagion or impurity. Um, but also that I think very much, very much in our community often, and it's another part of American thinking maybe, is the fear or the feeling that we're not allowed, we shouldn't communicate our own need when we're feeling this quality of disintegration or impurity because somehow we'll harm the other person. Um, so I think for us, often in our community, it's, it's more likely that people will remember to take care of others, but not necessarily ask for what they need for themselves. Um, and the other comment I just wanted to make about mentally ill homeless folks, because I worked with so many years ago, um, was what they said was that I no longer was seen as another right. human being. I just wasn't seen at all. Um, You're not seen. You become invisible to the yes. policy. That's right. Yes. That's you can literally actually disappear. People will walk by and not see That's you. Right. That's right. And they said so, that was the most unbearable part. So yeah. the by, so that gets back to the Talmudic passage of saying tahor, tame, tame, saying it twice means see me, pray for me, and um, take care of yourselves. So I just, I just was so taken by the fact that it has to be both. That that's, you know, if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? If I'm only for myself, what am I? Um, I there are more- Nancy and then Paul. 
Just one second, Nancy and Paul, wait one moment, because I just want to read the comments that came on. Uh, Roberta said to Meg, thanks Meg for listening so closely. I didn't give the full story. I was in quarantine for 14 days. After that, walking around, when people got less than six feet away, I say I've been exposed to COVID. Um, oh yes, a breach, the trauma of King Harry and May, of Prince Harry and Meghan leaving their community. This idea of a breach um, is, is, an, is an interesting word. So now, Nancy and then uh, Paul. Nancy, unmute yourself. There you go. You're ready. Okay. Could I see the thing again that we just read? Because um, if we can. Yes, can I... and if you can put it back up, that would be great. Okay, because what, what came up for me was, um, and I didn't think about it till we were doing this, I was thinking about the guy, the woman that's on the at the train station with all the bags and stuff that is on 72nd Street. Like I was thinking what happened to her and I was just thinking about that. And I was thinking about what this, you know, about this. And I think it's like, this teaches me not even realizing that I've learned this, maybe from here and, and another, another time, um, that I have, to, I have to see these people. That mm -hmm. I have to, you know, and I have to, you know, people like that, I have to see. And, when they say I'd rather have white rice than brown rice, I could laugh and know that I touch their soul when I give them something to eat. So, <laughs> you know, and I think that this is, you know, this is what, this is, is what, what this is showing me, you know, um, that when people are suffering, that I, I you know, I'm, I'm grateful that I, that I know it and I could be there. It hurts sometimes, but I still am grateful that I'm able to. And that's what this piece really shows me, you know? And then there's the other part of the impure and pure, not the homeless that, uh, that are lost, but the evil people. And that's the other piece that I have to be sure that I have to do in a whole other way. You know, I have to stay away from them, you know, and pray for them. So wow. that's two different things here, so. Wow, thanks, Nancy. I'm gonna actually, in a moment, share the, the next paragraph of the Talmud, which I should have put on this because it relates exactly to that. Um, and now um, Paul wanted to share, and then Helen and Bill. So, so this, is, uh, <clears throat> this is blowing my mind on sev several levels. Um, oh, Paul, let me just interrupt for a sec. You're not too far away from Roberta. Roberta, did you know that? Uh, yeah, I'm in Black Mountain. I, I noticed that. Are you in Are you in Asheville? Hey, yeah. nice to meet you. Cool. Hey. All right. I just to... Thanks, okay. Jonathan. All right. Okay. Go ahead, Paul. Uh, so, so I went to um, I, I I was at the CVS yesterday, and I had my mask in my car, but I went in without my mask, and I saw the the the, the people working at the store had their mask. And I felt bad that I didn't have my mask. Mm. And it just, there, there's a sensitivity out there that, that this is bringing up. It's that you don't know who's the leper and who's not, who is afflicted, who is not. And in a way I'm thinking, we're all the leper and we're, and we're, we're the leper and the community at the same time. And it's like, 
what are the parts of ourselves that, that we've held as unacceptable? What are the parts of ourselves that need to be maybe held apart to be healed? Uh, it, it's bringing up a lot in me, like 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 the difference between shame and you and true humility, and and also I keep thinking of Martin Buber, the I and Thou, because I I, I have this vision of of going in like a Whole Foods in Long Island, and people pushing the carts straight as if I'm going this way and this is where I'm going not looking who's around you and it's like even animals w will know who's around them what presence and it's like when we've lost that sensitivity and like people are objects and we're even objects to ourselves and it's just that this this whole thing is blowing my mind and i'll, I'll share something briefly personal when i was a kid in georgia I was riding my bike and I lost control of the handles. I fell, scraped my face pretty badly. I had like blisters on my face. I remember it and I remember, and this stays with me, I'm looking in the mirror and I felt like the leper. I felt, wow, I, I looked at myself, I'm ugly. And I, and I remember riding my bike around the neighborhood and thinking the whole world could see how ugly I was. And it was just something from childhood about shame and humility, whatever. I'm not psycho, but it's like, I, I, I don't know, I, in the, no, no neat way of saying it, but, but it's, it's just bringing up all this stuff. And I, I've gone through stuff of adulthood of feeling like, oh, you know, I'm not acceptable or whatever. It's, it's just, it, it's, it's amazing. But I, but I think the key is, it, it, is that I and thou having that 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 sacred relationship in the moment? Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Now, all of these observations are exactly what build out our sense of of what the passage in Torah might be alluding to, and the rabbis of the Talmud give us more of an entry into it, and then you all expand on it so beautifully. Uh, Helen, Bill, I recognize you in a second. We're almost out of time. Um, so let me hear from Helen and Bill, and then I'll make some closing remarks. Uh, uh, and we could go on, couldn't we? This is really marvelous. Helen, did you want yeah, to speak? Okay. Can I speak now? Can you hear me? Mm -hmm. Okay. I just wanted to do, uh, speak about the death. Uh, about a week ago of John Crine, the songwriter yeah. sing, and he has a song that's called, that's, the name is Hello In There. I know it well. And I've been listening to that song since he passed away, and it sums up everything that everyone said. You know, you're absolutely right. That that's it. Everybody, if you don't know John Prine's Hello In There, um, listen to it. Helen is 100% right. I used to sing that song about people who are invisible and who need someone to say hello in there. It's a fabulous song. Do you remember it well enough to sing it to us? Um, oh, oh uh, I can look it up on my computer. Oh, I, I know where I have it. Hold on a second. Oh, great. <laughs> no, no, he wants it. He's no, that's that song book is at home. 
I think in the, yeah, after we say a couple more things, um, thank you, Helen, it's a fabulous observation. And John Prine, his memory, he, he died of COVID uh, infection and he was 71 years old. Um, Ruth commented earlier about the meaning of hospice, to means both host and guest. They were considered a mutually happy exchange. The host would be as happy to receive the guest as the guest was to be hosted. And Blaze just wrote, we or I am susceptible to being swayed by or receiving of other people's energy. I think that awareness of one's, my own energetic strength or weakness matters. What might I be taking on that does not belong to me? How can I be compassionate without being sucked into someone else's energy because I am not rooted, grounded enough to remain in my own space? and yet offer whatever gifts I have to others. When someone asks to be with me or to speak with me about their situation or feelings or thoughts, they are giving me a gift. Thank you, Blaze. So much wisdom in this Zoom room. Gail said, maybe the impure one is calling out to God. Wow. And Blaze continued, and am I in condition to receive it without hurting myself? Usually, yes. Giving and receiving are a circle. There is not one without the other. Joan shared the link to the John Prine song, which we should all listen to. Can we, uh, um, Gwen, can we play it to all of us? You're muted, I Gwen. I should be able to play it, but the Joan, oh, I see the link, I'll try. Okay, and don't play it yet. We'll play it at the end, okay? Oh, beautiful. Great observations, Blaze, healthy boundaries. Okay, so here are the last couple of things I want to say, just because of the time limit we set on ourselves. First of all, I want to say how many people, how many unnamed, countless people are observing this mandate right now. It's really important to remember the amount of kindness that's being expressed, the amount of food that's being delivered to people's doorsteps, the amount of reaching out that's going on, it's beautiful. The amount of self-restricting that millions and millions of us are doing out of an understanding of the common good, it's extraordinary. Um, so even as we, the, you know, the news, the news and our own inner, inner self-righteousness wants to focus on the, the morons who are doing what they're doing and getting themselves onto the news. But let's keep in mind uh, how many people are, understand the duality of, um, of, this, uh, of what it means to be alone together, as it were. Um, and that's important to remember. The other thing is that I didn't put this on the um, sheet, so I have it right over here. I don't know why I didn't, but it relates to, um, it relates to, uh, um, was it Nancy speaking about evil also? How to stay away from evil? Yeah, right? So in the next one, it says, Abaye says, we're, uh, he's another famous sage, uh, we, we can learn from here, as it is written in Leviticus in a few chapters, you shall not put a stumbling block before the blind. So this commandment, do not put a stumbling block before the blind, is understood in the rabbinic tradition, not just to be a literal stumbling block, right? It's a metaphor. 
obviously you don't want to put a stumbling block before a blind person. So the rabbis immediately expand this to being, you don't want to give a misleading or false information to the ignorant, right? You don't want to lead them down the wrong path. And that is the evil we're experiencing, you know, where, where, in for for um, you know for our fearless leader's um, own sense of uh, of self and for the protection of his and other people's wealth, he is willing to mislead actively people who might not know better. And so I was thinking about that, Nancy, when you were saying. Um, and the um, the the last thing I want to say. Uh, Oh, this is the last thing I want to say. I think that was the last thing I wanted to say. Um, Ruth said, in another aspect of life, the deep cry often of people and couples of needing to be seen, heard, even when the relationship may appear just fine from the outside. Indeed, yes, like our press giving wrong, president giving wrong info. Good slip there, typos there. Is it the press or the president? That pretty much sums up our national debate, doesn't it? Uh, okay. Thank you. Um, I'm having a really interesting time studying the Torah portion from our current perspective and then seeing what our tradition has to say about it. I wonder what we will discover next week. Um,